True crime, unsolved cases, strange disappearances. Join me as we travel through the timeline of some of the darkest acts in human history. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and welcome to the first season of The Deadly Countdown. Episode 8, Fred and Rose West, Monsters Unleashed. Last week, we left the young Rosemary West explaining to anyone who questioned the whereabouts of Fred's daughter, Charmaine, that she had been collected by her biological birth mother, Rena. Rena apparently deciding to leave her other daughter, Anne-Marie, behind without a second thought. According to Rose, of course. In reality, the body of Charmaine was hidden in the coal shed, awaiting Fred's return from jail to assist in disposing of the body. With Fred and Rose now both, as far as we're aware, culpable of a murder apiece, today we unveil what happens when gasoline meets fire, and the results make for terrifying reading. Welcome back to The Deadly Countdown. I'm your host, Kevin Eustace, and today we continue our look into some of the most gruesome murders ever committed on UK soil. As you would expect when looking into a case like Fred and Rose West, this episode once more is not for the squeamish. And what started out intending to be just one episode about the Wests has, due to the sheer details involved, found itself becoming a trilogy. Therefore, the final part of our Fred and Rose West saga will conclude on our penultimate episode next week. But before we literally hold our breath and take a deep dive into the crimes of Fred and Rose West, I need to give a quick shout-out to our wonderful club members over at Patreon. We're building a wonderful community of like-minded true crime enthusiasts over at Patreon, and we'd like to extend an exclusive invitation just for you. Simply head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. And when you do so, you will gain early access ad-free to each and every episode. Not only that, you can also gain access to the Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case, which is out each and every fortnight. On that show, for Patreons only we will take a look at some of the most famous cold cases in history. We've already covered D.B. Cooper, and this week we will look at The Black Dahlia. So why not treat yourself to two additional shows each and every month and early ad-free releases of The Deadly Countdown by heading over to patreon.com forward slash The Deadly Countdown. Just like the following wonderful new club members have. Jesse Saroy, Dee Darby, Hanny Lauren, Leslie Doherty, and Steve L. Thank you so much, guys. It's great to know you're all over there, founding the Patreon community for The Deadly Countdown. So, if you'd like to join them and gain ad-free early access episodes, and of course, access to the Patreon-only show Cold Case, 
and become one of our founding members, head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. But right now, for Fred and Rose West, Monsters Unleashed, let's start the clock. When Fred was released from jail on June the 24th, 1971, Rose debated how to break the news about Charmaine. However, when she did, Fred basically walked into the backyard and chose an area of muddy ground. He then proceeded to bury the body of Charmaine. But apparently not before taking some fingers and even a kneecap as keepsakes. Although just allegations, the majority of bodies eventually found all had similar bones missing. Anne-Marie, Charmaine's younger sister, was still not convinced by Rose's words that her biological mother, Rena, would just leave her taking only Charmaine back to Scotland. Rose had a word with Fred, and Fred took Anna to one side and explained not only did Rena only want Charmaine, but she didn't want Anna as she was the wrong colour, as Charmaine was mixed race. But there was a bigger issue that they had to deal with in regards to the missing Charmaine. Her mother, Rena. You see, Rena always maintained communication with her children. Although she was not physically present, she harbored deep concern for their well being. Rena obtained Fred's location on Midland Road with the intention of confronting him, most likely to discuss or demand custody of her girls. However, she unknowingly put herself in a perilous scenario because this encounter provided Fred and maybe Rose with a dark chance that they could have only hoped for. It's hypothesized that Fred enticed Rena into his residence on Midland Road, where he got her exceptionally drunk before guiding her to the rear seat of his Ford vehicle. He then transported her to an unidentified place and allegedly subjected her to a sexual assault before strangling her. Upon the discovery of her corpse, investigators recovered a small piece of metal tubing inside her, suggesting that she had suffered a horrific sexual assault before being killed. He then dismembered Rena's corpse again severing many fingers and toes, and subsequently he bagged up her dismembered corpse and buried her in close proximity to Anne McFall's remains. With Rena no longer a factor in their relationship, Fred and Rose decided to take the next step and tie the knot. On January the 29th, 1972, only Fred's brother, John, was in attendance as best man during their wedding ceremony, a low-key affair that took place at Gloucester Registry Office. Soon, Rose discovered that she was expecting their second child, 
which indicated that the newlyweds would need more room. And so the couple rented a three-story home, situated at the now infamous 25 Cromwell Street. They would eventually go on to purchase the property from the council for a sum of £7,000. The top floors of the home were first turned into bedsits in order to make the property financially viable. But to ensure privacy, Fred made adjustments to the household. Adjustments such as adding a stove and a wash basin on the landing of the first floor. By doing things in this manner, their lodges were not required to reach the ground level, which was reserved only for the West family. Additionally, and eventually essentially, the West family maintained exclusive access to the garden. The birth of their second daughter, May-June, took place on June the 1st, her name chosen as she was born on the cusp of each month. The property, 25 Cromwell Street, would subsequently acquire a notoriety like no other and be referred to as the House of Horrors. Using the excuse of money being rather tight, Rose began working as a prostitute soon after the birth of May-June. She advertised her services in a local contact magazine and worked out of an upstairs bedroom, which they renamed Rose's Room. Aside from the paid sex... Rose would have casual intercourse with male and female lodgers in their home, as well as people Fred met whilst working. Rose would progressively heighten the intensity of the sadomasochism when she had sex with ladies. It was common for Rose to exclaim, Aren't you woman enough to take it? If the lady fought back, or showed signs of discomfort or fear. Both Fred and Rose liked nothing more than any sexual activity that involved a high degree of aggression, pain and domination. Together, they collected a lot of bondage and restraint devices, also videos and pictures including child pornography, to satisfy their cravings. Fred fed his voyeurism by creating peepholes in Rose's room. He even set up a baby monitor in the room so he could listen from other rooms as he travelled around the home. When Rose was occupied, a red light would be turned on above the door to the room. Whenever Rose's customers came to visit, they were told to ring the separate doorbell that Fred had created. The key to this sordid chamber, which only Rose had, was hung around her neck, like some macabre jewellery. Bill Letts, Rose's abusive father, at some point seemingly not only accepted Fred, he even went into business with him, opening a short-lived cafe, The Green Lantern. This new friendship became a truly honest one. And one can only imagine about how the conversation came around, but in an already horrific family dynamic, 
Bill soon started having sex once again with his daughter Rose. This time, however, as if it makes it any more palatable, it was on her terms. Soon, the evil sexual gratification the pair needed reached new heights, and they turned their attention to Fred's daughter, Anne-Marie, just eight years old. She was led to the cellar and gratuitously abused by both Fred and Rose. Afterwards, Rose smiled as if to comfort her, and informed her it was a daughter's duty to have sex with her father. She also informed her she would be beaten within an inch of her life if she told anyone. Anne-Marie would be continuously raped by her father, egged on and even occasionally restrained by Rose up until the age of 13. At this age... Rose decided Anne-Marie was a good age to start working the Rose Room. The Wests would tell clients she was in fact 16, and Rose would even sit watching, ensuring the poor young girl didn't divulge the truth or reach out for help. Now with some surplus cash thanks to both tenants and prostitution, the Wests would encounter a nanny that they required, a young lady by the name of Caroline Owens, who they found hitchhiking on a rural road. Upon learning she was seeking employment, the Wests promptly offered her a position as a nanny for their three children. A few days later, Caroline eagerly relocated to 25 Cromwell Street, Thrilled to finally leave her mother's home and secure a job that could sustain her, she ended up sharing a room with Anne-Marie. She would attempt to engage in conversation, but she noticed Anne-Marie displayed significant withdrawal and anxiety. Caroline would observe the numerous men entering the premises and making their way towards Rose's chamber. Fred and Rose, however justified this by stating that Rose was employed as a masseuse. It was when Fred initiated sexual approaches towards Caroline that she realised she needed to leave, and leave quickly. When she informed the Wests about her decision to end her employment, Rose and Fred started concocting a scheme. But Fred wanted to know the extent to which Rose would engage in sexual violence outside the confines of their bedroom. Consequently, he floated the idea of abducting a certain someone. And Rose readily agreed. So, on December the 6th, 1972, the couple began their devious plan. Knowing Caroline was a hitchhiker... They gave her a head start. But they knew the roads she would attempt to use. Soon enough, they noticed Caroline attempting to hitchhike back home. They promptly pulled over and expressed their deepest apologies to Caroline for Fred's behaviour and offensive remarks. She accepted their apology 
and also agreed to their offer of a ride home. She believed that they were sincere and had benevolent intentions. However, when she questioned why the car was going in the opposite direction, Rose began to physically assault Caroline in the back seat. When Caroline tried to defend herself, Fred pulled over, opened the back door, called her a bitch and punched her about the head, knocking her unconscious, gagging her with duct tape and a scarf. When she came to, she was back in the cellar at Cromwell Street. They forced her to drink a drugged cup of tea and she passed out. And they assaulted her for hours. Caroline came to during the attack and began screaming as loudly as she could. So Rose grabbed a nearby pillow and smothered her with it. Caroline realised it was impossible to fight back and so she stopped resisting. They left her restrained in one of the bedrooms. When she woke up alone, she naturally screamed her lungs out and Fred ran to the bedroom door saying he would lock her up in the cellar and bring his friends around to abuse her if she didn't stop screaming. He then threatened to kill her, saying he'd already killed hundreds of young girls. After a few hours of silent terror, Rose calmly entered and asked Caroline if she would consider returning to work as a nanny. Recognising this as the only way to escape her captors, Owens complied, and she did activities like vacuuming to seem compliant and want to join the family. Her opportunity to flee came later that day, when she and Rose visited a laundrette. Owens fled and returned home. Owens first felt too traumatised and humiliated to tell her mother about the assault. But when her mother saw the welts and bruises, Owens broke down in tears and described her terrifying story. Owens' mother quickly reported the incident to the police and the Wests were arrested for assault, indecent assault, actual bodily injury and rape. The trial was scheduled for January the 12th, 1973 in Gloucester's Magistrate's Court. By trial time, Owens couldn't handle the agony of testifying. Thus, sexual abuse accusations were withdrawn. The Wests pleaded guilty to indecent assault and real bodily injury. They each got a £50 fine and were unexpectedly released from court. After hearing this, Owens unsuccessfully attempted suicide. It was three months after their trial for assault that Fred and Rose West carried out their next murder. In the beginning of 1973, they were introduced to Linda Goff. She was 19 years old and a friend of a male lodger. Goff often frequented this apartment on Cromwell Street and engaged in relations with two of the male lodgers there. On April the 19th, she relocated to the residence of the Wests. On all around April the 20th, the other tenants were erroneously notified that Goff had been instructed to vacate the premises 
due to an alleged incident of physical aggression against one of the West's offspring. Goff's own mother was even told this lie when she inquired about the whereabouts of her daughter. It was only when Goff's corpse was later discovered, it was clear the utter torture she had went through. Her mandible was securely fastened with glue and surgical tape to stop her screaming, and it's presumed tiny tubes were placed into her nasal passages to allow her to breathe. Long strands of cloth and twisted textiles were discovered next to her corpse. Goff was presumably executed by hanging, using apertures in the wooden beams of the basement. This particular technique was disclosed by Fred, who admitted devising it for the purpose of hanging victims. The likely cause of death was asphyxiation resulting from either strangling or suffocation. Goff's mutilated corpse, with many missing bones, was hidden inside an inspection pit located under the garage. Once again, several bones, including fingers and vertebrae, were taken from the corpse. The basement of 25 Cromwell Street was the principal site of several killings according to comprehensive investigations conducted by forensic specialists. The basement of this infamous property was the last resting place for five people who met their ends between 1973 and 1975. On November the 10th, 1973, a girl called Carol Ann Cooper, who was only 15 years old, was heading home after going to the movies with her boyfriend. Cooper a resident of Worcester's Pines Children's Home, was kidnapped as she waited for a bus in Warnden. A car pulled over with a kindly-looking duo inside, and, smiling, they offered her a lift home. She politely refused, but the kindly duo left the car, surrounded her, and dragged her into the vehicle, bound her with fabric over the arms and covered medical tape over her face. After that, she was taken to Cromwell Street and subjected to terrible cruelty. Cooper, dangling from the wooden beams of the basement, was either strangled or asphyxiated in the end. Her corpse was dismembered after she died, and she was buried in a small area of the basement. Fifteen months subsequent to these first murders, four further victims ranging in age from 15 to 21, suffered the same fate as Goff and Cooper. The method of dismemberment became more gruesome as the number of victims increased, and the artefacts discovered in each shallow grave indicated a steady progression of cruel torture. Fred West grimly covered the whole basement floor with concrete after the 1975 murder of 18-year-old Juanita Mott, he eventually unbelievably turned this area into a bedroom for his eldest kids. There then seemed to be a lull in the killings after this, as Fred and Rose were not involved in any other killings. That is, until May 1978. Shirley Robinson, an 18-year-old lodger at their home, was killed at that time by Fred, who may or may not have been assisted by Rose, but either way, 
she was aware of the act. Robinson became a lodger with the West family after meeting Fred for the first time at the Green Lantern Café, the one he co-owned with Rose's father in April 1977. Shirley was heavily pregnant, and, bizarrely, Rose, who was pregnant herself at the time, proudly told neighbours how Fred was the biological father of Robinson's child. But Rose's attitude clearly switched significantly to one of acute jealousy, and it's believed Robinson's murder was at the behest of Rose, to remove the perceived danger to her relationship with Fred. The severely mutilated parts of Robinson were discovered buried in the backyard of 25 Cromwell Street. Remarkably, the remains did not show any indication of constraints, which would indicate that sexual assault did not play a role in this homicide. This does seem to be out of character, a murder of necessity as opposed to one of pleasure. However, the fetus had been brutally removed, with its exhumation displaying a number of dismembered bones. Unbelievably, Rose tried to apply for maternity benefits for the now-buried child using Robinson's name, but her effort was denied. Fred and Rose would answer any questions about Robinson's disappearance by stating she'd gone to live with her father in West Germany and not laying dead a few feet under the lawn. August the 5th, 1979. That was the final day that a homicide could be shown to have been committed by Fred and Rose West with an obvious sexual motivation. Alison Chambers, a 16-year-old who had begun working as a live-in nanny for the Wests in mid-1979, had departed from a neighbouring children's home. Rose West had promised Alison a wonderful life at a peaceful farm, and she promised her and her husband owned the land and it would be a life of tranquility. The excited and eager Alison was keen to start this new life of tranquility, However, her body was discovered buried in the yard of the Wests, next to the wall of the toilet. Even though Chambers' corpse was probably dismembered, her bones did not have the same indents and markings of the victims who came before her. From our West family perspective, the abuse continued. I made you, I can do what I like with you. Fred would simply explain away his acts to his daughters, which were open and unrepentant. On one occasion, he even said he wanted to impregnate both of his daughters. Other times, he would have his children watch pornographic videos with him. But given the similar age between Heather, May and Stephen, the three of them made a pact to never let their father lock the girls in a room alone with him unless there was another member of their group there to protect them from sexual assault. A routine that the girls established included waiting for their father to leave the home or for one of the sisters to be stood at the door watching guard so they could get dressed or take a shower. Also, Fred told Stephen that he should be ready to have sexual relations with his mother 
by the time he was 17. According to May's memoirs, Heather seemed to be the most affected by what happened. By the mid-1980s, Heather began to exhibit typical indications of stress experienced by victims of child abuse. She would bite her nails until they bled, drink heavily. She would warily watch her father whenever he entered a room, expressing anxious fragility around any males, having nightmares that disrupted her sleep and bouncing from chair to chair with anxiety and nervous energy. It's strongly suspected that by 1985 or 1986, Heather had been coerced into engaging in sexual relations with her father. Heather was the target of growing amounts of negative slurs, such as ugly and bitch, remarks from her father, who had never really warmed up to Heather. And Fred and Rose began to even assume that she had homosexual tendencies as a consequence of her turbulent conduct. Heather told May and Stephen that she wanted to leave home, become a nomad, and never see people again. Well, her wish would come true, just not how she wanted. In June 1987, Heather's aspirations of freedom all relied on obtaining a job with a holiday resort in the seaside town of Torquay. But on June the 18th, she received the news her application had been unsuccessful, resulting in an emotional breakdown in the presence of her siblings, May and Stephen. On the morning of June the 19th, Heather was the epitome of true anxiety, gnawing at her nails, fidgeting on the sofa, whilst her siblings glanced at each other and got ready for school. When Stephen and May returned from school, they got some surprising news. Heather had left home to accept the exact position in Torquay she'd previously been rejected for. To Stephen and May, this made no sense and led them to probe further. In order to address and cease their children's questions, her parents fabricated a story about Heather eloping with a female companion, and that was to be the end of the matter. Rose even arranged for an unknown person to call the residence sporadically, where Rose would smile and talk to with who she claimed was Heather. And so the siblings' questions soon died down. However, following Heather's disappearance, Fred would occasionally make disturbing jokes to the rest of the children, suggesting that if they misbehaved or spoke badly to others about the family, they may end up buried beneath the patio like Heather. He went on to build a barbecue close to Heather's grave, He also placed a pine table over her actual resting place, this eerie arrangement becoming the focal point for the family and any visitors to congregate during summer gatherings in the yard. The family joke about ending up under the patio was eventually brought up by one of the West children whilst they were talking to a friend and the news quickly spread around the school. And soon, social workers began interrogating the students about the joke involving their sister Heather, 
who had gone missing at the age of 16 and was, as a joke, allegedly under the patio. Enter Detective Constable Hazel Savage. Desperate to uncover the truth behind the joke, she dove headfirst into the fact Heather seemed to have disappeared without a trace. No evidence of working at a summer camp or a romantic getaway were ever found, and the only place they could not check was the one alluded to in the sick family joke underneath the patio. With each passing day, DC Savage and her crew were more and more persuaded that Heather was dead, and that Fred's sinister comments about her corpse laying under the patio were in fact true. It took tenacity and it took time, but on February the 23rd, 1994, Detective Constable Savage convinced her superiors at the Gloucester Police Department to issue a warrant. A warrant to search 25 Cromwell Street for the remains of Heather West. No one could have imagined the nightmare scenario that was about to be uncovered. Next week, we conclude our look at two of the most sickening individuals to ever grace the earth, Fred and Rose West. And don't forget, if you'd like early access and, of course, access to the Patreon-only podcast, Cold Case, this week we look at the case of the Black Dahlia, head over to patreon.com forward slash the deadly countdown. Next week, we'll find out what justice, if any, was dished out to Fred and Rose West. But until then, for Fred and Rose West, Monsters Unleashed, let's stop the clock. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.